Father, I thank you for this day. I thank you for the brothers and sisters here who, uh, Lord, have, have come in a spirit of worship. We've joined our hearts together. We have, we have come to seek you. We have come to be transformed by you. Lord, and I, I, I thank you for the sweetness that we have in the body of Christ. Uh, Lord, I pray a blessing over those who are new in our gathering, those today who are visiting, those who are watching online. Lord, uh, I pray that you would bless each and every one. Draw us to yourself. Encourage us this day. By your word, I pray. In the name of Jesus, we ask this. Amen. I want to start by asking you a, some questions. Have you ever wanted to quit? Have you ever wanted to throw in the towel? Have you ever faced opposition, faced an enemy, or faced drama that, that, that took the life out of you? you ever feel the energy just ebbing out of your body and your soul? Have you ever faced exhaustion and discouragement that broke you down to your knees? Have you ever felt the pain of, of betrayal by one or some who you once knew as a friend or friends? Maybe even family. It got to the place, maybe with family, where you needed to get some space from them just so you could breathe because you knew you weren't going to make it. You were suffocating and you gave up. In fact, maybe right now some of you hear this and, and you know that there's someone in your family or among your friends maybe who are at odds with you because you picked peace over drama and disrespect. Have you experienced this? Have you ever come to the place where your prayers for maybe reconciliation turn for prayers of removal? Lord, take this from me. I can't do it anymore. Lord, take this from me. Even as our Lord Jesus prayed, Oh, Father, let this cup pass. Have you ever prayed for the cup to pass? Ever pray for the drama to stop? Ever pray for the stress to lift and, it, it, and it's not lifting? Ever pray for the pain to stop and it's not stopping? Ever been sucker punched by the true colors of another? Ever been maligned and placed in a position where you couldn't do anything about it? Have you ever had your name dragged through the mud as you took the higher ground, but you still suffered the scars of it. You, you know, the older you get, it doesn't hurt any less, young people. I hate to bring that news to you, but hopefully as you get older, you begin to process it differently as you learn through the hurts of life. As a young person, you'll want to protect your name in every situation, but as you get older, you'll see the wisdom in protecting your peace and your sanity. Let whoever think whatever, let it go. Let it be. It is what it is. And yet, have you ever tried to let it be what it is and it doesn't work? It's just too deep in your head and you can't, get, you can't stop it. It keeps cycling. The gaslighting turns into a forest fire in your mind, leaving it racing and replaying instead of resting and repairing. You ever love someone who cheated on you? Ever had your heart broken and it just doesn't stop and you keep feeling it and you keep thinking about that? You ever come to the place where you realize that that person is not that person and they're not going to change? Your friends, your family, maybe they told you to move on and let it go, but oh, the years are lost already and you look at that and think, I spent so many years waiting for this person or that thing and then you called it quits. Speaking of making things work, you ever reach the place where no amount of elbow grease will suffice? It just won't work. 
You ever try to get a job that you desperately wanted and you have the doors closed on you again and again? Have you ever had a dream that you, you chased that dream and you realized that dream wasn't going to happen? Ever buy into the cultural Disney lie that you can make all of your dreams true if you keep it real and you follow your heart only to fall on your face and find your heart crushed and your dreams dashed? Ever try to pull yourself up from your bootstraps only to find that you didn't have any boots to begin with? Have you ever pushed yourself physically? You push yourself your body and, you, and your body reaches a limit of what it can't do and you come to that sobering reality that mind isn't always over matter. Your body just won't let you do it. Ever have your body riddled with, with mental anguish? Ever feel an anxious? And try to stop being anxious and it just makes your anxiousness worse. You're anxious about being anxious. Ever tried to stop being depressed? Ever studied so hard for a test and you failed it? Ever fail a test and say, I'm going to do it again? And you study all over, to, all over only to fail it twice, maybe third times? Have you ever felt failure? Have you ever called it quits in the darkness and be left in brokenness? Well, if you've ever had feelings like this, you're in good company, specifically with the saints in our passage today that we are going to be studying in Ezra chapter 4. So please open your Bibles to Ezra chapter 4. We are going to see in this chapter where God's people throw in the towel and they call it quits. In fact, the title of my message today is Calling It Quits, and we're going to see Israel come to this place where they, they just throw the towel in. It's just too much. It's too exhausting. They can't go anymore. Now, by way of context, we left off last week in the midst of this historic moment at the end of exile for God's people. Some 70 years earlier, they had their nation taken from them. They lost absolutely everything. They lost their jobs, their homes. Even worse, in some cases, they lost their families. Sons were murdered. Daughters were tortured, people enslaved, everything that they knew was gone. The center of their lives, the holy temple, the, the center of their life, the holy temple was smashed into pieces. In 2021, we watched our, uh, on our TVs, we watched mobs vandalize and trespass our nation's capital. The temple in Jerusalem was very much their capital. It was the icon of their nation, the temple. And, and we, we saw that on our TVs and, we, you, you know, you have a reaction to it like, oh, my gosh, I can't believe our, our, the, the, the center, this icon of our culture is, 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 is being vandalized. Imagine how we would feel if, in fact, it were broke down to the ground and gone. Imagine, imagine not only having our capital broke down and gone, imagine losing our country. Imagine a foreign power coming in and, and knocking over our capital and kidnapping us. Imagine Canada doing to that, that to us. It's funny, right, thinking of it, but uh, those Canadians come in and destroy all of our stuff and, hey, they take us away, right? Well, a few decades into the exile, the people are. They've, they've been exiled. They're out of the land. They've been there for decades, as I said. They've, many of them, they've lost hope. They, they threw in the towel. They gave up. It was just too much. They just couldn't do it. No amount of work worked. The enemy was just too powerful. Babylon was just too big. And then God comes and he picks up the towel that they threw. 
He picks up the towel. He wipes down his people. He raises up the Medo-Persian Empire who conquers the enemies of his people. And this new power, the Medo-Persian Empire, in the Middle East had no beef, no quarrel with the children of Abraham. So they were freed to go home. You can leave Canada, go back to California. Here's the green light. And then it's time for you as you come back to rebuild, to return and rebuild. This was amazing news. Liberation from a foreign power, freedom had finally come. Sadly, most of the people, they, they'd called it quits. It was just too much. It was, it was too much. The despair of exile had crushed the spirit of the survivors. They had no energy. They were too old. Their bodies couldn't do it. Their minds couldn't do it. Hope was gone. They moved on. This week marked the 100th anniversary of the Tulsa Race Massacre in Oklahoma on May 31st and June the 1st. 1921. Maybe you saw some of that in your news feeds, the 100-year anniversary of this. The wealthiest black community in the area of Tulsa, including a section that was known as a Black Wall Street, the Black Wall Street of America, was burned to the ground by a racist and bloodthirsty mob. The massacre was not just on the ground, it was in the air too. Uh, whites used airplanes and they shot rifles from airplanes above the heads of black people as they were fleeing. They dropped firebombs from airplanes on their homes and their businesses and even their churches. One journalist recounts in a matter of hours the 35 square blocks of the vibrant black community were turned into smoldering ashes. Countless black people were killed. Estimates range from 55 to more than 300, and over 1,000 homes and businesses were looted and set on fire. Over 10,000 were homeless and left the area in despair and fear. Reading the history, one understands if you went through that, if you had people shoot at you from airplanes, throw bombs from airplanes, mobs on the ground, destroy your neighborhood, destroy your business, destroy your home, you, calling it quits makes sense. We're too tired. We can't do this anymore. In the case of Tulsa, the corrupt courts and the law enforcement, they weren't going to bring justice. The white mob members weren't thrown in jail. No one went to jail. Journalists report in the week following the massacre, Tulsa's poli police chief actually ordered his officers to, to go and to find uh, photography of the event and confiscate all of the pictures that were taken uh, by those in the midst of the carnage to cover up the history. They covered up the history of this bloodbath. In fact, for decades, the surviving photos of this incident only made it into the Tulsa Historical Society and Museum in 2001. Imagine being crushed. Imagine enemies removing the evidence of it. Imagine losing everything. No one would blame you for saying, I don't want to do this anymore. I share this historic comparison in uh, the North American context in hopes of drawing some emotional life to us as we enter into the text. It's easy to read uh, of these foreign matters thousands of years ago. And, and so if we have some parallels, maybe that brings some emotional life back to it. We've studied how the people of Israel didn't want to go back. They're given the green light. They don't want to go back. And we don't want to stand over the narrative and judge them without thinking about, hey, I know the pain of having my heart broken. I know the pain of betrayal. I know the pain uh, physically in my body. I know, the, I know what that's like when you want to throw it in. Okay, that, that helps me appreciate the text, the pain, the darkness. And yet there's also a judgment to the narrative too. So while we want to empathize with the text and those in the post-exile, 
we also need to understand that there is a judgment. So we mustn't just do empathy here. You see the prophets of the post-exile who we're going to be studying in this sermon series. In fact, next Sunday, we're going to, we're going to take a pause in Ezra and jump over to some of the post-exilic uh, prophecies of the time. The prophets actually issued judgment on the people. It wasn't, it wasn't that they were okay with them calling it quits. You see, because it wasn't just a mindless and vicious racist mob that came in and took their land. You see, God told the people through the prophets that it was he a mindful and loving God who took the land from them. Babylon was God's instrument of discipline on them. A loving father disciplines his children, so too the father above. His children had been warned, stop, 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 and they did not turn. And so they brought exile upon themselves. Again, this wasn't a hateful and random mob that came and took their stuff. This was the hand of the Lord. And, 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 and so they need to, as a people, realize this. And these texts, particularly the prophetic ones, are showing them this. This was just judgment. So then throwing in the towel when God is disciplining you and being faithful to you, that's really exposing the real issue. When your sin is called out and it turns to blame shifting, excusing, fighting, the real issue is exposed. Sin, pride, faithlessness. Israel was called to repentance. Israel was called to faith. Israel's priests and prophets were calling her, stop, turn from this rebellion, turn from your faithlessness, pick up the towel. You can't call it quits. We have a covenant with God. That land is, is special to his plan to redeem the whole earth. We have, a, we have a mission. We've been called to be the priesthood to the fallen nations of the world. We have to get up and go. We are, we are in exile. It's our doing. So to stay in exile is just further evidence of, of the judgment that you deserve. But God mercifully, mercifully, as I said a moment ago, picks up the towel that they threw down and he begins to wash people. He begins to wash them. And he begins washing a remnant from among the people to wake them up from the pain, to wake them up from the despair, to wake them up from their slumber. You see, God was using the pain to get their attention. C.S. Lewis observed in his classic book, The Problem of Pain, this phenomenon of how God works through our pain when C.S. Lewis wrote, and I quote, pain insists on being attended to. God whispers to us in our pleasures, speaks in our conscience, but he shouts in our pain. Pain is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. And so the exile of Israel, that, 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 that pain, that bodily pain, that mental pain, that relational pain, all of that pain was a part of God saying, come to me, come to me. It's, it's time for you to go back to the land. Shower in God's mercies, be washed, be cleansed by repentance and faith through divine grace. Come to the Lord and receive his power, receive his joy to carry you back to the land. Look, I understand not wanting to go back to Tulsa. If some, if some, if some people uh, hated my skin color and just, you know, burned all my stuff, shot my, my dad in the head from an airplane, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm out, Tulsa. Bye. <laughs> I mean, that would be my inclination, in particular, if you'd been suffering under it. Imagine your family left Tulsa and came to California for a better life. 
imagine being born in Los Angeles and hearing the stories of your grandparents about how bad it was and just being, you know, removed from it and being in a new generation where things are a little bit different and civil rights are a little better or whatever. And, you, you know, those are just old stories of old times in a distant place. Imagine if someone tried to get you and Angelino to go to Tulsa to rebuild. Right? I'd be like, I'm good. I'm, I'm not going to Tulsa. I was born here. My friends are here. I'm, you know, going to college here or whatever. I met a girl here. I'm not going back to Tulsa. I'm good. I'm not doing that. Likewise for Israel. 70 years. So you have a generation that's born in Babylon that assimilated into Babylonian culture. That's got Babylonian girlfriends and boyfriends and went to, you know, Babylonian high school and played on the Babylonian football team or whatever. They have no relationship to the land of Israel. They've just heard their grandparents talk about it. The synagogues actually started in this era. So if you were a part of a family that was particularly pious, maybe you went to synagogue and you learned about prophecy and you heard about prophecies of returning to the land and you studied the significance of the land. And and for those who maybe were involved in synagogues, they would have been excited about it. But if your family wasn't bringing you to synagogue, right? If your family wasn't bringing you to church, these things would just sound foreign to you. A temple. Why do I, I don't, I don't care about a temple. I don't care about that place. In our studies uh, last week and the week before, I, I showed you as we looked at the text how most of the people decided to stay. And a small group, a remnant that God was raising up, began going back to rebuild. They were undermanned. We saw last week in our study in particular how few priests that they had how they had to lower the age requirement of the priests just to get enough men to lead. We studied the hard work that they had before them, and we saw last week in our study, the first point on your outline, the drama as it was coming at the people. I shared with you a a hard reality of life under the sun last week. As certain as death and taxes are in this life, likewise drama and conflict. Unfortunately, drama and conflict has a way of happening at the worst of times, it doesn't, uh, it doesn't send you a, a link to your Google calendar to schedule when it will arrive. You will be dealing with an internal family drama, and then wham, external drama hits. Maybe there's a conflict at home with your spouse, and then blam, a coworker at work has it out for you and starts bashing you at work. Maybe you're going through stress in your family, stress in your marriage, and, and then you have a friend who maybe once was a shoulder to cry on who has now stiff-armed you with rejection creating a a drama instead of rallying support around you. Or maybe a real physical threat. You're going through uh, something at work or something at home, and all of a sudden your body doesn't start working right, and you go to the doctor, and you're getting blood tests, and they're finding things are wrong. Or maybe a physical enemy, a physical threat comes your way. Someone who physically wants to hurt you. And so you find yourself sleeping with one eye open, afraid that the enemy might come to your door, and you got the other eye open because the person next to you is mad at you, and you're getting hit from both ends. In our study last week, we saw the temple had just got started. They just started building the temple, and the people start praising God with joy. The people are happy, they're they're excited, and then all of a sudden, it gets drowned out by drama. The people are weeping. The people are upset. When you have seven kids, uh, like I do at home, this is often a phenomenon where people are happy and people are upset. That's almost always the case. It's basically dinner and family movie night, uh, you know, every day. 
Hey, we're having spaghetti. I hate spaghetti. Why can't we have this? Okay, we're having this. I hate this. You know, the kids are cheering and whining at the same time, and the living room is just filled with, you know, this noise. Hey, let's have a movie night. We're going to watch Incredibles. I don't want to watch Incredibles. I want to watch Peter Rabbit. Oh, I hate Peter Rabbit. Let's watch Hamilton. No, I want to watch Lion King. And then there's Obi, you know, Paw Patrol, Paw Patrol. And if it's not Paw Patrol, it, 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 that's just it. You know, it's got to be Paw Patrol or nothing, and he's going to be crying, and movie night is ruined. Like children, the people of God are being selfish. Rather than rejoicing with those who rejoice, they bring drama and division. Collectively then, collectively then, they are divided in their hearts before their leaders who are laboring to lead them in the promises of God. And while the Debbie Downers and crying Karens and balking Bills and divisive Daves are sucking the life out of the room, blam, this is where we left off last week, blam, while they're dealing with this internal drama, blam, an external attack comes. Ezra chapter 4, draw your eyes at the text, verse 1. When the enemies of Judah and Benjamin heard that the people of exile were building a temple to the Lord God, the enemies have heard they're there and they're, they're ready to come. It just got real. The people better wake up and see who their enemy is. Earlier, look at Ezra chapter 3, verse 3. We read that they were terrified because of the peoples of the land. There's an awareness that there's enemies on the horizon, and yet this drama and division has moved their eyes off course. Here in chapter 4, verse 1, the terror has now come to their front door. While, while, while the family's arguing about Lion King or Paw Patrol, there's a bad guy outside who's going to come in and, and he's going to rob you. Israel was busy dividing itself internally while a great external enemy was on their doorpost. People wake up. This is a principle that we need to hear. We can, we can often forget where the real enemy is and where the real mission is when we are distracted by drama in-house. Churches will fight over carpets. We just got new carpet, praise God, haven't had any fights yet. Churches will fight over music. Churches will fight. I've been raised in a church. I've seen people fight over the craziest of issues. They'll, they'll fight over, now in this era, social media. They'll fight over decisions. Why did you decide that and not this? Meanwhile, people are dying and going to hell. Meanwhile, demonic forces are attacking the church from the outside while we're arguing about uh, you, you know, something that's superficial in, in the end scheme of things. You know, when folks cannot see this principle at hand, You've you got to be careful. You've got to be careful. 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 8 warns us that your enemy, the devil, is always about prowling like a lion, roaring for its prey. In, in the case of Israel, the dark forces are upon them. God poured a spirit of joy into the people, poured a spirit of joy into the people to give them the energy to face that enemy, and yet the people quenched that spirit of joy that was poured out on them with unhappiness and being disgruntled. Perhaps some of the mourning as well. Again, it's, it's understandable when you think about Tulsa, you think about you know, going back to rebuild something that maybe you weren't a part of originally. You go back for the older people, the text told us, and you're comparing what you're building to what was lost. Ezra records that confusion. We studied it last week. So it sounds less like a choir of people in unison singing with vo one voice and it sounds more like babble with just indistinguishable sounds of joy, of pain, of madness, of anger, of division and the wicked spirit of babble is now at work. 
I shared with you in the last two messages expositing chapter 3 how the rebuild of the altar and the temple likely included the work not just of building up but tearing down. In the ancient world, the temples and the shrines of conquered peoples were often taken and repurposed. It was the ultimate insult. So, for example, when Rome took over the Jewish temple, they put up a pagan shrine of Zeus inside of the Jewish temple. They smeared pig's blood around the Jewish temple. It's the ultimate insult. So when the Jewish people came in the Maccabean revolt to restore worship, you not only have to rebuild, but you have to tear down. You have to tear down those things. Now, the demo crew of Israel has caught the attention of the enemies. The locals who were occupying the land, now Israel's back, and they come in and they go straight on the attack. And who do they attack? They go to strike the shepherd. Because when you strike a shepherd, the sheep will scatter. The enemy knows what he is doing. Draw your eyes at verse 2. They, the bad guys, approached Zerubbabel and the heads of the households, and they said, let us build with you, for we, like you, seek your God, and we have been sacrificing to him since the days of Esar Hadan, king of Assyria, who brought us here. The enemy goes for the shepherds. The enemy goes for the fathers. The enemy goes for the heads of the homes. He goes to Zerubbabel, who is the head leader of the people, alongside Ezra and the prophets and the priests. The enemy is shrewd. The enemy... The enemy uh, 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 acts like his motives are pure. That's a part of his shrewdness. And that is often how God's people are attacked. Just like we see here in Ezra 4, the enemy comes in. Hey, I just want to help. Hey, I wanna, I, hey, can I help you guys? Can, can we help you guys? The text is clear. This is their enemy. The enemy comes in shrewdly like, hey, we're just here to help. And we're going to see by the end of the chapter, they have their way. Who exactly are these enemies? Uh, the text mentions the days of Eshar Haidan, who was an Assyrian king. Recall that it was Assyria who pulled the Tulsa massacre on the ten northern tribes of Israel and wiped them out before Babylon came in and stormed the capital of Jerusalem and finished the two remaining tribes of Israel in the south. So the twelve tribes, uh, Assyria takes the ten, Babylon takes the two. So these enemies of Assyria, they've got a, they've got a rap sheet of being enemies with your people, vicious enemies. In the ancient days, people told time by referencing their rulers. And in this case, of course, they don't reference an Israelite king or they don't mention a, a Jewish event as a time marker. They mention an Assyria one in the days of Esar Hadan. Esar Hadan was a polygamist and a paranoid politician who fought the, 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 the family and, and fought, fought his own family and fought whoever stood in his way for power. He defeated sections of lower Egypt. He was the prince of Assyria. He designed... Uh, or he was designated, excuse me, heir of the, of the great king Sennacherib. He was named after a pagan god, Eshur, who was the head of the Assyrian pantheon of gods and goddesses. He's depicted in ancient artwork as, as being a warrior archer flying with feathered wings around a solar disk with devil horns. So, so you know, this time marker, Esar Haidan itself, that, that name invokes an image of dark wings and horns and power. Speaking of the gods, notice the enemies talk about your God in the text. That is the God of the Jewish people, Yahweh. They do not say, however, my God. I think of Moabite, uh, uh, the Moabite Ruth, who, who said in Ruth chapter 1, verse 16, your people will be my people and your God will be my God. There's no my here. And yet there is a claim that they sacrifice to Israel's God. Hey, we just want to help. Hey, we sacrifice to your God. 
going back to what I said about the pagans and cleaning the area, the pagans were known for uh, spiritual syncretism. They're polytheists. Uh, they, they, so throwing another god on the Barbie isn't a big deal. What's having some friends over to your house for dinner when you're already in line at Costco buying pizzas? Yeah, you can bring them over. Pizzas are like $5 here. We could just get a whole bunch. It's not a big deal to have more people over when you're getting Costco pizza. Likewise, it's not a big deal for pagans to throw another god in the mix because you already got all these gods at your table. We want to worship. You guys don't want to worship. It's worth noting that some scholars tie the, the people here to the, the people that we know uh, in particular in the New Testament is the Samaritans. When the Assyrians conquered Samaria in 722 BC, they exiled the Samaritans, and many of the Samaritans found refuge in the land of Israel. In fact, it's referenced, if you're note-taking, in 2 Kings 17.24. The ancient Jewish historian Josephus actually writes about this moment in Antiquities, Book 11, sections 84 through 87. Josephus describes them as enemies. In Ezra 3.3, we saw that they were described as enemies before this scene in Ezra 4.1 that reminds us of the enemies. They, they, but they come, they're shrewd. They come, they're shrewd, they're ready to attack. So we see drama comes. That's the first point on your outline. In the first two verses, we see that drama. The second point on your outline is that to the drama that has come, now there's decision and commandments that the leaders have to process. What are we going to do with this drama? Under the law of Moses, ritual purity is everything. As we saw last week, the land itself was sacred. The land itself, Jerusalem, was believed to be a porthole from the heavens to the earth. So they were literally standing on holy ground where God was bringing his presence. So it, it, was, it was a significant place to be. The ground is, it was believed in Jewish tradition to be the very ground of Eden, where God created man and woman, to be the very ground where Abraham brought Isaac. This was not just the location of the great Solomonic temple, that ancient wonder of the, of the world, but it was the site of sacred history, the place where God made man, the place where God calls Abram, the place where God builds an archetype temple that actually mirrors the actual temple in the heavens above. Bottom line, the place is holy. So holy that the law, the commandments needed to be followed. The priests were there to build. They couldn't just get any random guys. Hey, we're short on hands. Let's go down to Home Depot, get some guys, get the project done. No, you can't just do that. The workers have to fit the kosher requirements of the law of Moses. There's commandments. We have a decision. The drama has come. We have a decision and we're under commandment on how to deal with this. If anything, the temptation would have been to take up the offer. Hey, uh, we're, we're undermanned. We barely got enough priests. We had to lower the age requirements. You guys want to help us build. You guys uh, look like you know what you're doing. Uh, yeah, you know, come join the party. That, that would have been the, the temptation. It would have been the political thing to do, not to mention the, the polite thing to do. Right? If you move into a neighborhood, you're brand new on the block, and, you're, and the neighbor comes over and says, hey, can I help you carry your boxes? It'd be rude to say no. The easy thing to do would be say yes. You don't want to offend someone. You get help. You know, it's a win-win. Politically, yeah, sometimes you work with nations that maybe don't really like you, but we, we get a good price on your whatever, and that kind of keeps you happy. So, yeah, we'll let you import, we'll export, whatever, but we really aren't friends. We're foes. Now, mind you, this isn't strict for strictness sake. This is for, for everyone's protection. The presence of God was powerful. 
God's a consuming fire. I covered last week how people die in God's presence when they come unclean. The building of the temple is the center of their ritual purity. You, like, you can't just have any old random person build the temple. It has to be the priests. Look at the text, verse 3. But Zerubbabel, but Zerubbabel, and Yeshua, and the rest of the heads of the households of Israel said to them, You have nothing in common. With, with, with us in building a house to our God, but we ourselves will together build to the Lord God of Israel as King Cyrus, the king of, the, of, of Persia, has commanded us. So they, they made the right decision in light of their commandments. They did the right thing in the eyes of God. They said, you know what, we're not, we're not going to participate in this. We, we're going we're gonna to pull back from this. We can't, we can't do that. The, temp, the building of the temple requires this ritual purity. They're, they're not a part of the priesthood. They can't do it. And again, God's not being petty here. God has an order to things. Even today, God has an order to our worship. God has given the church pastors. Uh, pastors are, are serving in a particular role of, of authority and leadership. God gives uh, the church and the congregation. He has an order to the congregation. There's an order to our worship gathering. We pray, we sing, we hear the word, we have communion. The things that we are commanded to do, we're, we're ordered in that. And those are the things that we draw a line on. If the government said you can't take communion, if the government said you can't sing, if the government said you can't preach Jesus, we're, nah, we're, the decision that we'll make will be to roll with the commandments of God. God had commanded them, this is what you have to do. This is how you do it. This is how you build the temple. In the case of Israel's order, Foreigners aren't allowed to participate in building, but foreigners are welcome in worship. Josephus, when he wrote about this uh, particular history, I'll quote Josephus here. He has this line, it's great. He says, Josephus, the ancient Jewish historian, he notes, it was indeed lawful, though, for them to come into worship if they pleased. Isaiah the prophet speaks of welcoming foreigners in worship. A beautiful passage, if you write it down and read it later today, Isaiah 56, verses 6 through 7. I shared with you in, in last week about the theology of the temple and how the temple was a witness to the nations. The temple was supposed to welcome them in worship. It was supposed to be a spiritual centrifugal force that sucked the nations of the world to come to that holy place and meet the God of creation. The God of Israel wasn't just the God for Israel. This is the God of creation. We cross-referenced last week with Ezra chapter 3, the New Testament account of Jesus coming and, and how Jesus came to the temple and how Jesus cleansed the temple and how Jesus was filled with righteous anger over what the temple had become in his day. We saw in the Gospel of John how, how the text presents Jesus in John chapter 1 as God's temple, as God's tabernacle. And then we saw in John 2 how Jesus, the, the temple of God, because he's God in the flesh, he is the literal presence of God. The literal presence of God comes into the archetype temple and he goes in there and he cleanses the place. And we, we, we saw last week in our study as well, Jesus' prophecy about the destruction of the temple that came under the hands of Rome. We, we, we talked about how Jesus came and, and died at the hands of Rome and, and died not just as a mere martyr among men. He was holy God in the flesh, one with the Father, one with the Spirit, and he dies as a sacrifice to reconcile humanity to himself. As the temple of God, he mediates between mortals and the immortal God. And by taking on mortal flesh and dying, he takes the penalty of our sin. The penalty of our sin is death. 
and separation from God. Behold God in the flesh who has come to reconcile us to himself. He takes the death we deserve. He dies in our place. He gives us life. And as God, he has the prerogative to extend forgiveness. The temple that we are studying is filled with all of this great symbology about how God draws the nations in worship. But the penultimate symbology of it all is Christ Jesus who has come. God brought the, 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 the people to the land to build the temple as a part of a preparation for the day that God the Son would come himself into that land. Sadly, sadly, when God came into the land and brought his literal temple to the temple, the people missed it. The people missed the battle that was at hand. And sadly, here we see in Ezra, the same thing was going on. They were missing what was happening before their eyes. As a result, their right decision to keep the commandment of God is going to come with more opposition. And as we'll see at the end, they're going to throw in the, the towel, sadly. Pick your eyes back up at the text in verse 4. We read, The people of the land discouraged the people of Judah and frightened them from building. So we move on the outline. Drama comes. Decisions and commandments, point three, discouragement and coercion. The people of the land, verse four, discouraged the people. In the Hebrew text, there are two words here for discouraged. It's merapim uh, yadeh, which literally means to weaken the hands of. Merapim yadeh, your, your hands have lost strength. You, you, you can't lift anymore. You, your body can't push anymore. There's no mind over matter. You've lost strength. You can't lift. You can't keep going. This, this is why we have to be careful when we find our bodies, by the way, weakened. This is why you have to be careful at taking care of yourself and your, your health. You know, there's a saying that if you don't make time for your wellness, you'll be forced to make time for your illness. Let me say that again. If you don't make time for your wellness, you'll be forced to make time for your illness. What is true of the physical body is true of the soul. Is, is true of the spirit, is true even for the church itself. We have to make time for spiritual wellness or we will face spiritual dryness and spiritual discouragement that will eventually lead to sin and despair. We have to make time, for example, on Sundays to be here in worship. We have to make time for reading our Bibles. We have to make time for, for meditating on the catechism we have to make time for studying the things of the Lord, for serving other people. There's so much that happens when we're serving others and putting others first. You have to make time for those things as a part of your spiritual wellness. Otherwise, you'll be forced to deal with spiritual illness. In the post-exilic text, it is clear that Israel is ill. Israel needs restoration. Israel needs wellness. Israel needs rest. This was of importance for the people of Israel. There, in fact, in the commandments that we were talking about for the temple, there's also the commandment of Shabbat, of Sabbath, of rest. God graciously gave them Shabbat for their care, as well to remind them that he's the one doing the work. You rest. I'm the one who's doing the work anyway. While, while you sleep and while you sing, God will continue carrying the work. There's a famous line by the great missionary Hudson Taylor, when we work, we work. When we pray, God works. In the case of Israel, they need God to work because their opposition is using coercive tactics to weaken their hands, to discourage their soul. Draw your eyes at the text, verse 5. 
The bad guys hired counselors against them to frustrate their counsel all the days of Cyrus, the king of Persia, until the reign of Darius, the king of Persia. So we read here in verse 5 that the enemy is running around and getting in other people's ears in order to coerce the scene to come up against the people, to stop them from doing God's work. You can imagine how that goes down. Hey, we just wanted to help them. We came, we said we wanted to help. We came, we said we wanted to worship. And their priest said no. You know, uh, well, may maybe you could help us and you could talk to the priests about this. You know, and then, then that keeps going. You know, maybe those priests don't really love God. Maybe they're not actually the real. Maybe, maybe they're not leading well. They're just holding you guys back. I mean, look at, look at, you guys are really small. You could use help. You know, aren't all your people back in Babylon? I mean, come on, you know, let, let us help you with this. And so the coercion turns into this game of politics. It's old-fashioned lobbying. You funnel gifts and cash into the pockets of the congressman who gives you what you want and, and, and over the course of a fundraiser or whatever. The powerful companies will use lobbying to let the politicians know who's got the money and where the money goes and where they need to uh, go as well if they want to keep the money flowing. Coercion comes to light often by examining the tracks of the cash. Who gets hired? Who gets paid? You learn some things. They hired, verse 5, counselors. In Ezra chapter uh, uh, 4, verse 5 here, the, the hiring of counselors uses an interesting Hebrew word that is the same word for Persians' uh, advisors, the, the advisors of the kings. We see that word, in fact, appear in Ezra 7.28 and 8.25. So they're, they're actually bribing government officials to frustrate the rebuilding project. The tactic that they're using is defamation, which is a very effective tactic. When the devil wants to stop God's work, he'll attack, he'll attack with defamation. It's one of his go-to techniques. After all, we read inside of the Bible that the devil is what? The accuser of the brethren. And to move the people, he can, he can enlist them. The devil can. He can move the people in the physical realm by acting in the spiritual realm in this, in this effort. Combine defamation, combine the politics, combine the unhappiness that was already there in the people. They can turn the people against the priests. You got a cocktail to burn the whole temple down. Verse 6, we read, in the reign of Ashurerus, in the beginning of his reign, they wrote an accusation against the inhabitants of Judah and Jerusalem. This brings me to the next point. We see drama comes, decisions and commandments, discouragement and coercion, and now defamation and cancellation. In verse 6, they are attacking the people of Israel. There was a great hostility in the land, especially at that specific location of the temple. The children of Israel uh, uh, were not welcome there. They didn't want them there. They wanted to get them out. Every generation that has been there has found conflict in that real estate. We see that that even continues today. Recently in the news, you've seen it. Literally, the, the sky over Israel is lighting up with rockets. There's reports of death. There's reports of hatred. It makes sense, given what I've taught you in recent weeks about the importance of the temple for the salvation of the earth through God's program of Israel and the promises that God has made to his people Israel. Of course, forces of darkness would come against God's children. Of course, they would bring discouragement and coercion. Of course, they would bring defamation and cancellation. This is, this is where God manifests his presence. This is where God needs his people to be unified in corporate praise. Of course, the enemy's going to attack that. That place today, the place that we're studying, that place today is known popularly as the Temple Mount. So if you hear about the Temple Mount in the news, they're talking about the same place we're studying here in Ezra. 
Jewish people refer to it as uh, Har Habayit. Bayit is a word for house, Har Habayit, as well as Har Ha Moriah, the Mount of Moriah. So if you hear talk of Mount Moriah or Temple Mount, they're, they're talking about the place we're studying. In Arabic, it, it is known as El Makbah, which is the place of weeping. Indeed, it is a place of weeping. To say this each year, in fact, on Tisha B'Av, which is in August, the Jewish people uh, observe Tisha B'Av in August, and they have a fast, and they commemorate the destruction of the temple. To this day, they recite lamentations and dirges. Tisha B'Av is regarded as the saddest day in the Jewish calendar. It's not just a sad day, it's a sad place. It's a place to this day of intense tensions, a center of controversy and conflict, a location that joins the nations of the world. And instead of being a place where the nations could come and have peace, Jerusalem literally means the city of peace. Instead of being a city of peace, it is a gathering of war. If you go to the land, uh, you, 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 you will see what we refer to today as the Temple Mount. You'll see the old city of Jerusalem when you go there. And at the right hour of the day when you go, you, you'll feel the tension. There, there's these big gates. There's, there's security, armed security everywhere. There's metal detectors. It's a, it's a military zone. It is a place that reminds us of the very sad history that we are studying. Ezra 4 is, is one of the places, one of the sad moments in this history. The temple of Ezra and Zerubbabel that we are studying today that would be subsequently renovated and blinged out by King Herod. That temple, when Jesus came, that temple would reject Jesus. That temple would be toppled by the Romans. As the Roman Empire passed, local actors, to give you some history here, with military powers, controlled that area. There's always been fighting for that area. Moving forward in history from the Roman Empire into the 600s, a very popular polygamist and powerful military leader named Muhammad founded a new religion, and he advanced the sword to take over the land. He claimed that Allah transported him on a winged beast from Mecca to Jerusalem and up to heaven. And subsequently, the military leader, Caliph Umar, built a mosque to commemorate uh, Muhammad's trip into the heavens on a winged beast. In the late 600s, the followers of Muhammad, back then the Muhammadans, today known as Muslims, they built a shrine there where the temple once stood that's known as the Dome of the Rock. So if you're looking at geography today and you see the Dome of the Rock, the Dome of the Rock is what we're studying. It's the location we're studying here in Ezra 4. They put the Dome of the Rock smack dab in the center of the Jewish Temple Mount, where the Holy Temple once stood. In the early 700s, followers of Muhammad built the Al-Aqsa Mosque that would become the third holiest site in what later would become known as Islam. Right behind Mecca and Medina is the Al-Aqsa Mosque, right there. So with this history before us, with our news before us, with rockets in the sky in our news, we go back to Ezra 4, we read of this enemy, you can understand the tension. They don't have rockets, they don't have the advanced technology, but it's that same spirit. We don't want you here. The Temple Mount, the holiest site of the Jewish people, it was taken from them by Babylon. It was, it was reduced to ashes. The enemies occupied it. Eventually, they'll get it built. Eventually, they'll build that temple. Eventually, they will. But at this chapter that we're in today, we're going to see they call it quits. They just can't do it. They can't go anymore. They, 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 they tap out. What remains today of the Jewish temple is a 170 foot long uh, and 60 feet high ancient wall that's referred to as the Western Wall. It, 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 
it, it still stands today. It was constructed under uh, Herod the Great around 20 BC. It's a very impressive site. In fact, uh, beyond and behind the site, actually below the site, there's another uh, 1,500 feet wall that is, that is masked uh, by homes and structures. And below the site, there's a massive underground of chambers and walkways that's carved into an interesting subterranean history. If you come on our next Israel trip, when COVID lifts all of its uh, stuff and we can get back out there, I'll take you underground and you can see the tunnels and the controversy and feel the tensions and the conspiracy. And as an American tourist, the good thing is Jewish people, they won't let, but as an American tourist, you can actually go on top of the Temple Mount uh, and, and you, can, you can hear the chants of the crowds calling for the death of the Jews to this day, the death of the Jews. And you could go to the Western Wall and you could see the Jewish people praying and praying and praying, God, bring our temple back. You know, many Jews want to rebuild the temple to this day. It's just like what we're studying in Ezra 4. According to Jewish and Christian prophecy, the Messiah is going to come to Jerusalem in a time of great war and he's going to bring peace. According to the prophecy of Daniel chapter 9, verse 27, it seems that there will be an end times temple, that there will be this figure that we read in the Bible known as the Antichrist in the last days who will come. And Jesus spoke, in fact, of there being sacrifices being offered to the Antichrist. Since other parts of Daniel's prophecy were fulfilled literally, leading up to Jesus' life and death, I understand these passages to be literal predictions about what's going to happen, more than predictions, prophecy, so they will happen. It is worth noting as a parallel here that in eschatological Islamic texts, and Jewish, excuse me, in Muslim prophecy, there is also believed to be a Messiah that's going to come. Uh, Muslim prophecy predicts a Messiah is going to come known as the Mahdi, who's going to overthrow the Jewish people and overthrow all the enemies. In fact, in Islamic prophecy, the Mahdi comes also with Jesus, albeit it's not our Jesus, it's a different Jesus, and he comes and he crushes all the Jewish people and judges everyone and uh, you know, restores all things for, uh, for the Mohammedans. All this to say, when you're reading prophecy in the Bible, when you're thinking about this land, when you're studying ancient texts like Ezra and Nehemiah and Esther, when you're reading post-exilic prophets, you, you gotta see like what, what's, going, what's going on today was still going on then, and you gotta see that God's in control over all of this. And let me say really quick for clarity's sake in terms of drawing these parallels and giving you a little history about the conflict in the land, uh, that I'm, I'm, not, I'm not making any uh, uh, current political statements about the national behavior of Israel as a state or a government today. Many uh, critics stereotype Christians in North America as giving uh, the modern government of Israel a blind pass politically as though everything that Israel does is fine or maybe it's even prophetic. That ought not to be the case. So for clarity's sake, whether the modern state of Israel is the biblical fulfillment of things in scripture, specifically if the modern state is the prophetic nation that we read about in eschatological texts of the Bible, I'm not making any assessments on those things. I'm just trying to help teach you Ezra and see the tension. So as you're reading about the bad guys in chapter 4, you can see, hey, that tension's still going today. And the bottom line is that God is faithful to his people. In Christ, we have been joined to his people, brothers and sisters. We have become heirs of these promises that were made to Abraham and his children. Our program in Christ is not the rebuilding of the temple. In Christ, we are the new temple. There will be a literal temple, but in this age, the church has been given a mission to form this temple, and we do this not by politics, but by prayer, by praise, by spiritual, by spiritual warfare of, of digging in for good and righteousness, what we call discipleship. This is our building campaign, coming to hear the word of God taught, 
coming to sing praises to him. This is our building campaign. This is how we in this age build the temple that we have been called to build. In Ezra 4, they were called to build, but discouragement and coercion and defamation and cancellation and all of that got them off course. Jesus said in Acts chapter 1 that the times of the epochs of Israel's kingdom have been fixed by the Father. It will unravel. It will come. But for now, step back into the ancient text. Draw your eyes back at verse 7. Draw your eyes at verse 8. In verse 8, we read that they wrote a letter against Jerusalem. They're defaming God's people. In, in modern terms, they're sending emails around. They're mounting discouragement to get Israel to call it quits. They weren't there to worship. They weren't there to help. They're, they're, they're there to stop this. So in verses 6 through 13, for sake of time, we're not going to read it, but, but you see on your outline, slandering the remnant, we see that they, they move with their coercion and defamation into slandering the remnant. Note that Artaxerxes, that is mentioned here in verse 7, is the Persian ruler over the empire who is leading at the time of Ezra, and, and he is the one who is leading at the time uh, of Nehemiah. So, in fact, he's going to be the one who's a part of having them throw in the towel, but God's actually going to use Artaxerxes as a part of picking back up the, t the towel, which just shows how baller God is. God has his way. The devil knows, though, in this moment how to slander. He goes for the people in positions of power. They get in the ear in verse 8 of Reham. Reham then gets him to join in this slander campaign. Reham writes a critical letter, and oh, the irony that Reham's name is the shortened form of the Babylonian Rehamim Eli, which means my God is merciful. That's the irony, because Reham isn't being so merciful. He's being critical and slanderous. Uh, we move from the slandering of the remnant into the time of the searching of the record. Let's, let's read some of these verses. Verse 11. The copy of the letter that they sent to King Artaxerxes, your servants, the men in the region beyond the river, and now let it be known to the king that the Jews who came up have come to Jerusalem. They're rebuilding the rebellious city, the evil city, and they're finishing the walls and repairing the foundations. Now let it be known to the king that if the city is rebuilt and the walls are finished, they're not going to pay tribute, custom, or toll. It'll, it, it will damage the revenue of the kings. Now because we are in the service of the palace and it is not fitting for us to see the king's dishonor, therefore we have sent and informed the king so that a search may be made in the record of the books of your fathers. And you will discover in the record of the books and you will learn that the city's a rebellious place and damaging to the kings of the provinces. They've incited revolt in past days. The city, the city was laid waste so there's a call here there's a call here to search hey you guys go 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 do some searching talk to people find written accounts historical records etc find find examples of of this narrative they've got a narrative they've spun they're they're bad people they're evil people they 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 don't participate with the government well they're they're bad so they get this narrative spun and now go and find examples of that narrative so we can keep spinning this in modern times they're going to troll the social media dig up old emails call people make a case it's not an objective audit by no means they've created a narrative they've set a confirmation bias and it, it works really good uh, so and so said such and such have you seen so and so do such and such yeah and then you just keep you keep unraveling this thing and it, it's going to gain momentum and, 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 and then eventually, they're going to throw in the towel. That's what happens with Israel. For, for Israel, this so-and-so says such-and-such, you guys, uh, your city's rebellious. Your city doesn't get along with foreign powers. 
Now go and search in the royal records and see if you can find instances where this is the case. You know, go, go, go and see if you can find this yourself. So, so, so they get in the ears of the powers. Israel's not a good neighbor. And, and, and then we read, verse 17, that the king sent an answer to Reham, the commander. Verse 18, the document which you sent us has been translated and read before me. Verse 19, a decree has been issued by me. The search has been made. We, we found instances where what you're saying is, is true of them. Yeah, like we, we see what you're saying. That thing spun and Israel calls it quits. Verse 23, then as soon as the copy of King Artaxerxes' document was read before Raham and Shimshai, the scribe, and their colleagues, they went in haste to Jerusalem to the Jews, stopped them by force. The work of the house of God in Jerusalem ceased. It was stopped until the second year of the reign of Darius, the king of Persia. You happy now? You guys, you got, you got what you wanted. You stopped, you stopped the people from doing God's work. But you claimed to be there for worship. Oh, we, we, we see the true colors in, in the enemies in, in chapter 4, verse 1. We, we see that they were there to cancel. They weren't there to participate. They, they, they were there to cancel. They were, they, were, they were out to get what they wanted. And a decree, this is the final point on your outline, has been issued. Decree and calling. Drama comes, decision commandments, defamation cancellation. Last point, decree and calling. It has been decreed you have to stop. Now, Israel, at, at that point, could have said no, you know, and they could have kept going, but they're too tired. They're too beaten down. What I began with in the introduction, you know what it's like. You've been there. So on the one hand, we don't want to stand over the text and go, how unfaithful. God brought them there. Why don't they keep going? You know what that's like. You, you know what that's like. Now, spoiler alert, they ultimately won't, won't be stopped. Israel will rise up in God's power. The gates of hell will not prevail against her, nor will the gates of hell prevail against the church. As we studied in the history of Israel, we see God's faithfulness in spite of her sin. We're reminded of God's mercies. We're reminded of God's providential care for us, the church of Jesus Christ in this age. We are reminded of the importance of the temple and salvation history. And with this in mind, let us remind ourselves that in this age, God has called the church to be his temple. To care, to care for the church, to make sure we're spiritually well, to be his royal priesthood as Israel was the priesthood in that age and will be again in the future. While the temple was centered in Jerusalem and was to pull the nations by centrifugal force for witness, the church's force has been reversed and we are to go from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria to the ends of the earth as we await for the king to come in Jerusalem and then draw us all back into the center. God used Israel as a come and see witness to the world. God sends his church as a go and tell witness to the world. The history of exile and post-exile reminds us that God is not done with his people Israel. We read in prophecy of end times revival. We read in prophecy of a temple and Messiah. We read of the heads of the 12 tribes of Israel being gathered and the 12 apostles being gathered and the dead being raised. We, we read all of that. And it brings us to our own communion table. For there would be no resurrection apart from his resurrection. There would, no, there would be no future temple if there had not been his temple, the temple of God in his flesh. As you lift the top and you find the bread, we are reminded that we too are surrounded by enemies. Our enemies are not of the flesh, they're spiritual. They're forces of wickedness and darkness. 
Our enemy is, is sin and death. And we're reminded of the one who has come and took those in himself that we might be liberated and set free and be brought back to God the very same way these exiles were brought back to the land. Let us eat the bread and remember the one who has come for us. Now let's open the cup of the juice. Let us be reminded of the eternal son who took flesh and blood, a full human who died for us. No blood, no life. No blood, no life. No resurrection, no life. He poured out his blood to die for us. He is risen to conquer and to vanquish the aforementioned enemies of sin and death. Let us drink and give thanks for his work. The cup is a symbol of washing. The cup is a symbol of the gospel. The cup proclaims liberation, salvation, resurrection, resurrection power for we, the church, the temple of God in this age to go. Resurrection power is what keeps us all from calling it quits. In the introduction, as I, I shared of, of those temptations to call it quits, and no doubt in the course of your life, maybe you've quit things that you look back and go, I wish I would have finished college. I wish I wouldn't have given up on that person. I wish I wouldn't have given up on that thing. I wish I would have, you know, just done that or tried harder or whatever. We're reminded in the gospel, it's not about us trying harder. It's not about us doing more. It's about what God has done for us. Praise God. In the introduction, I, I shared with you about the massacre of Tulsa. And, 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 and like if, you, if your family moved to California and you're like, I don't want to go back to Tulsa. Like, I'm good. I don't want to do that. Just imagine, though, what kind of power it takes to get those exiles to go back to the land. The, the, they give up, and that's a bummer in this chapter, but still the power of God that had them there, and in spite of them giving up, in spite of them being stopped, right? God st still loves them and still faithful to them. In studying that dark moment of Tulsa, though, uh, I want to end with just a, a quick story. Um, I was researching Tulsa, and I read about uh, a church that was burnt down, the Vernon African Methodist Episcopal Church. In 1921, in that race massacre, they, they, they crushed that thing. They destroyed that thing. I went on the Tulsa Historical Society, uh, and I actually found a picture of that church with, with bricks everywhere. You know how I love PowerPoint. If I had PowerPoint, I'd be showing it to you right now. Uh, and I, I read about the pastor there, the Reverend P.W. Delisle. And the pastor there not only lost the church, but he, he, he lost his house. His house was destroyed. His family was homeless. And they stayed. And they rebuilt that church. I, I, read, on the web, I read online this. On November the 6th, 1922, they moved into a newly constructed house, the pastor and his family. The seating capacity of the church was increased. The pulpit furniture was installed. A building fund was accumulated. An estimated 200 people were added to the church rolls, increasing its membership up to 400. While the Tulsa massacre may have destroyed what was initially built at the location, it did not stop the Vernon AME Church from reconstructing and growing within the community. The main church building was finally completed in 1928, and it opened with great fanfare and joy, end quote. 
I love reading that history because it reminds me of that moment in Ezra 4 where, you know, you, you give up, but look, God's still going to rebuild. He's going to be faithful, and, and, and the joy is going to come in the morning, and the fanfare is going to come in the evening, and, and there's going to be refreshing times that will come. I think of our context in 2020 and 2021 and what has happened to churches across this nation trying to brave this thing. And I, I'm here to tell you, in the name of Jesus, God is going to do great and mighty things through all of this. These texts are reminding us he's sovereign, he's faithful, he's good, he's going to build. The gates of hell won't prevail. But we, brothers and sisters, we have work to do. We have a mission field. We must go. We have towels to pick up, to press on by the power of the resurrection. Let's pray and let's sing a couple of final songs as we close our service. Oh, God, I thank you for your word. I thank you for this era of history. When priests were were beaten down and tired and tapped out, where, where your people were maligned and slandered against, where, where there was coercion and politicking and narrative swirling. and Indeed, Lord, those, all of those things still happen today. So this text encourages us that you defend your people, you care for your people. While we don't deserve it because we do those things ourselves. So we would be hypocrites if we acted like we didn't. While we, we deserve your, your judgment, we deserve your punishment, Lord, you lavish us with grace. You brought your people back to the land. Indeed, you will uh, again one day do so. And now you have placed your church in this land and the earth to bear witness of your faithful record with Israel, of your faithful work in Christ's church. Lord, may we know your faithfulness here, each and every one personally. You are so good to us, so loving, kind to us. While the, while the accuser of the brethren rages, Lord, you speak your mercies over us forgiven, child of God, disciple of the great rabbi, ambassadors of the kingdom to come. Lord, renew us this day, I pray. In the name of Jesus, I ask this. Amen.